Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello! Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Food for Thought. This is the podcast that's on a mission and it's going to equip you with all of the evidence-based advice that you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, Sunday Times best-selling author of The Science of Nutrition. Please go check out my new book. I think it will help a lot of people out there. And founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. Now, in each of the 12 episodes, I'll be joined by guests, all of whom are experts in their field, which is wonderful. So together, we can all learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. Exercise for so long has been associated with aesthetics, um, but finally this perception is changing. Our mental health is incredibly important, and exercise can have a hugely positive influence on this. It's often not spoken about enough, and it might be a struggle to muster up the energy to do a workout, but trust me, the benefits will be well worth it. So this week's Food for Thought sees clinical academic physiotherapist Brendan Stubbs and I explore the many benefits exercise can have on our mental health and reinforce the importance it has on our well-being. Hello, Brendan. Hi, Yuri. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, I know that we've had a lot of discussions in the last few months and I finally managed to get you on the podcast. I feel so lucky. Um, you are the man when it comes to this subject. There's no question or doubt in my mind. And I think we should start today's episode with the fact that there is a positive link between depression, so mental health and exercise. But does this apply to all mental health conditions? Because when I say mental health, I think people tend to blanket the term, don't they, and just think depression. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, that's a really good starting question, um, really. So I think there's a, probably a differentiation between mental health and mental illness um, as a starting point. Um, so we all have physical health and we all have mental health. Um, and there are times when our physical health is not great. And I don't know, we may have, um, I don't know, low back pain or another physical health condition and we need treatment. And there may be times where mental health is within a range, which, you know, is, is quite normal, maybe feeling a bit flat or a bit uh, a bit more happy. And, and that's absolutely normal. But when we move into mental illness, such as depression or depressive symptoms, it's where for, uh, you know, a period of sustained over time, there is, um, you know, in the case of depression, um, reduced mood and several other symptoms which happen over a longer period of time. So it's bordering over from sort of mental health into sort of mental illness and um, mental, uh, you know, ill health symptoms. So just mm -hmm. to make that distinction. And when it comes to the benefits of movement for promotion of better mental health and mental reducing the risk of mental illness is there's emerging evidence around anxiety and sort of post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms and as an in intervention for movement um, there's quite a, a big and emerging robust evidence base for a number of different types of mental illnesses too which I'm sure we'll go through in the course of our conversation. 
Yeah, I find it completely fascinating. Um, I mean, you mentioned PTSD there, and that's something mm. that I have from my birth, my first birth, in, in, in my own way. Everybody experiences mental health in a complete unique form to them. But it's true, I always feel better when I manage to get out of the house and just get some fresh air and movement in. And when we when we mention physical activity and mental health, we, we don't just mean hitting the gym, do we? Absolutely not. And, um, you know, just that word in terms of like, like the gym, let's go to the gym or let's go exercise. That can be a barrier for many people, particularly when it comes to sort of mental health and people may have not had positive experiences, for instance, uh, you know, in PE at school as one example, and that can put people off going to the gym or try and exercise later on in life. And and really when we're talking about physical activity, we're talking about it in the broadest sense, which is you know, any bodily movement where you're increasing energy expenditure, which um, you know, you're able to do, and that could be to make you feel better. And that could be, you know, dancing, um, you know, with your friends or in your kitchen, listening mm. to some music. That could be, uh, you know, you know, going for a walk. It could be something more structured, like going to a gym or a, a class. Um, it could be just being outdoors and, you know, pushing your buggy or, you know, pushing, you know, someone you're caring for in a wheelchair. So it's much broader than just going to the gym or just going to an exercise class, although that is beneficial for people who really like that. Yeah. I think that's very reassuring for lots of people because I think a lot of people's lives have changed, Brendan, as well with the pandemic. And um, I, I think there must be a huge cancellation. I and mean, I don't have these stats to hand. I'm making a huge assumption here, but I just don't think that going to the gym is as popular as it perhaps was before, especially with with COVID not really disappearing. So it's really nice and refreshing to hear that. Of course, it's great if you love that, and it's great to go to maybe a class and get involved with other people, but. It's just good to know that it's not the only thing. Because you spend a lot of time researching this, don't you? This is your life's work, really, I would say. Yes, yes, it really is. Um, so I've spent the uh, last uh, yeah, good 15 or so years looking at, you know, how can we use movement in its broadest sense to help people feel healthy and happy? And for me, just naturally, um, it's always been about how can it make us feel better today and, you know, put the cards in our favour to feel better tomorrow and also in the future or for people who are struggling with their mental health or have a mental illness how can we use this as part of a whole menu of options to help people feel better so it's been you know many you know 15 or so years work and lots of writing and traveling and with people all over the world which is which is great and it's it's something which is accessible to all people because really we're just talking about movement which gets your heart and lungs um you know, increasing in the frequency in which you're breathing and which you're able to do. And also, um, you know, just getting your muscles working um, in any way which is preferable to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think we're designed, oh, I need to breathe as well. I and mean, sometimes I remind myself when you said that, it's like, oh, I need to breathe. I need to just, mm. we're designed as human beings to um, to live and breathe and move and I think the reason perhaps that there are major mental issues, I think, in people's lives at the moment is because society has just changed so much. It's almost not conducive, is it, supporting um, moving every day? No. In fact, society's, you know, fundamentally changed, you know, particularly over the last 20 years, 50 years to you know, the types of work which we'd have done previously or the types of way we'd gone to collect food and travel to make us into a sort of sedentary society, you know, so often for many people, you know, it's a case of, you know, getting up, maybe sitting down, having breakfast, perhaps, you know, going to, you know, take the kids to school or go into work, perhaps you'll drive or get transport there. Um, and then you'll often sit down in the classroom if you're young or mm. at you know, university, college, or you'll sit down at work. Um, perhaps you'll go out and, you know, for a brief walk or walk to lunch and then sit down with colleagues if you're at work again um, and then go back and sit at your desk. Although in current times, many people just stay indoors um, and may go out for a brief walk and then, you know, get in your car if you're driving to work and then go and sit down and watch TV, you know, get dinner ready and watch TV. And society's really been set up, you know, to completely sort of make it 
um, as easy as possible for us to sit down as much and engage us in terms of the stimulation around us, which tries to grab our attention is very much sort of promoting sedentary behavior, whether it be, you know, looking at our, our phones or looking yeah. at our TV screens and the favorite things, you know, it wants you to, st- you know, life wants you to stop still and it wants you to stop moving. And it wants you to, you know, be absorbed whilst not moving. So it's all set up to make us more sedentary. And there's a strong link, well, an emerging link, I'll I'll slightly reframe that, between being sedentary and and a range of different mental health symptoms and conditions. Mm. It's very hard, I think, if anybody listening has a type of job that just doesn't support their mental well-being with, with the additional movement aspect of the pillar. You know, I think companies now are getting better knowing they need to offer better food. I mean, this still isn't the case everywhere. I will just caveat that. It's very disappointing, but I I feel movements are happening and there's change on the horizon. But I still don't think that they, they treat exercise with the benefits even stretching, like perhaps people could go into offices and do stretching classes. Is there a difference between the type of exercise, Brendan, for mental health or is it just variety in general? Yeah, so I think the research, what the research shows today, if we just take depression, anxiety as what we call common mental health symptoms or common mental health you know, illnesses, the evidence base has really been you know, led by what researchers have been funded to do, and that's sadly the case in all research. So the, the overwhelming majority of research has looked at, um, which, is, which is good and positive, has looked at aerobic type exercises. And by that, I mean exercise which gets your heart and lungs moving. That could be going for a run. That could be, um, you know, going cycling or, you know, doing something which gets your heart and lungs particularly working. And obviously, when we're doing that, we're using our muscles anyway. There's an emerging... Uh, evidence base around resistance training or strength training showing that um, you know even if you have an anxiety or depressive uh, symptoms that uh, engaging in strength training can reduce your symptoms in a really meaningful and powerful way um, and a PhD candidate of, of uh, that I've had the pleasure of working with Rebecca Martland um, recently looks at one type of exercise which some people will be interested in looking at high intensity interval training and mm. that's something that will appeal to some people you know resistance training will appeal to some people you know running will appeal to other people some people will do all of them but she found a, a you know a really good relationship from Miranda control trials which is the gold standard form of evidence um, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine showing that high intensity interval training can also be good for mental health and then I'll finish off with two other points on this um, relating to sort of stretching perhaps more gentler um, movements um, which also work your body and your muscular systems quite hard Um, so another paper which we published um, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine showed that a variety of different types of yoga um, interventions can reduce uh, depressive symptoms so people with a uh, struggling with their mental health and there's also good evidence for pilates um, type exercises too so really my understanding from this evidence is that um, take what you enjoy and then you're much more likely to go and do it and find it pleasurable and keep going in the long run so really the evidence shows that lots of different types of exercise can help people Amazing, amazing. And good to hear about the Pilates as well, because <laughs> that's my kind of area. And um, although I used to do a bit of high intensity, but it's so interesting to hear um, to hear the stats there. It does definitely strike me that, I mean, the physiological and let's say neurochemical responses in the brain are just, first of all, fascinating, but hugely impacted then by the movement. Do we have research that areas in the brain actually change then, that that the signaling changes, or just to break it down for our listeners, that the little messages that are sent change when we move? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's absolutely fascinating. Um, And the, the, the honest scientific answer is we're still understanding about why movement makes us feel good. We absolutely, mm. you know, we've, we've shown that it has in, in lots of studies and combining these studies. Um, and there's numerous studies which have popped up and looked at different areas in the brain that change and in different sort of neurochemicals and immunological factors that change both in the short term and in the long term. And if I just talk about some of those um, in the short term, in the first instance, 
Um, so there's some short-term studies that have looked at people engaging in just 20 minutes of light activity within a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner. So this is um, a scanner where you can sit and actually look at what's changing within the, um, the blood flow to key areas within the brain. And they showed that you know, just doing this light activity with these cycles which they built into the MRI compared to people who sat still, um, you saw this increase in uh, you know, activation and blood flow and connection between neurons within key emotional processing areas within the brain. You know, the anterior cingular cortex is one area. The hippocampus is another mm. area we're really interested in. Um, this is an area reduced in many mental health and cognitive um, conditions as well. Just to explain, well. Brendan, for our listeners, the hippocampus, is that involved with you know, memories and things in the brain? Yeah, absolutely. So the hippocampus is really important for memories and consolidating um, short-term memories into long-term memories. And, you know, also helps with emotional processing. And in the context of mental health and mental illness, there is lots of efforts to go on to say, what can we do to stimulate um, growth and regeneration within this area? Because if you look in dementia, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, this is an area which is consistently reduced. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis saying, how can we stimulate the area of the brain called the hippocampus? An exercise has been found to shown to improve uh, in terms of circulation and connection in the short term and also in the long term. So we did a paper in Neuroimage um, about three years ago now and, and showed that over like a 12-week period, you can get volumetric changes. So what do I mean by that? So I mean that you can actually increase the volume of your hippocampus, this important area within the brain with, within a 12-week program of engaging in exercise. And that's really exciting um, with, from randomized controlled trials. Um, so that is some of this kind of stuff that happens within the brain. I mean, I could really go on, on and on and on, but there's <laughs> other factors which happen. You know, we've we've also shown that BDNF, uh, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and for your listeners and everyone, this is like your brain's fertilizer. And when this is released, it stimulates the growth of new nerve cells and new neurons which and synapses which connect key areas within the brain. So this is really positive. And we see short-term increases in BDNF and longer-term changes in BDNF. Um, I've just touched upon a few different areas, but these are some of the other areas. And perhaps just to talk about one myth area that um, we're learning, and that's the great thing about science is you know, we're continuing to learn and correct our knowledge as we go along. And previously, um, people thought that exercise made us feel good. And your listeners may have heard of something called the runner's high. Um, and and mm. quite commonly, that's referred to as, you know, a release of endorphins. And that's why we feel good. And that's not wrong. Um, endorphins are released when we exercise. But it's important to note that endorphins, we now know, have a real difficulty crossing the blood-brain barrier. So what does that mean? That means that they're released into the bloodstream, but to exert a positive impact on our mental health, they actually have difficulty getting into the brain to exert their influence. So we think it's due to some of the other mechanisms which I mentioned, and the stimulation of another area of the brain called the endocannabinoid system. Yeah. And this is a, a, you know, a reward processing area within the brain. Um, and I think I'll leave some of those neurochemical and biological explanations there. <laughs> it's that that's, you know, one of the areas that I find really interesting is the endorphin kind of misconceptions because people all, I mean, I guess it's easily understood, isn't it? The phrase that, oh, you just get loads of endorphins when you exercise, but actually it's the endocannabinoids. Have I said that correctly? That's correct. Yeah. That's and, the one. <laughs> Yeah, I, I learn as well. And I would have said the same thing um, in terms of endorphin. So we're always learning. And that's the great thing about science. Yeah, 100%. So it's fascinating. So ultimately, we are looking at the fact that our mood can definitely improve if we move. It's that simple. Is that or is that a bit of a broad mass scientific statement I should never make? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, you know, so I think there's, there's, there's two things there. So unequivocally, we have shown in randomized controlled trials. So this means you can make a causal inference. 
So saying I it is due to exercise versus no exercise, we can you can improve people's moods, whether you just you know you're struggling with your mental health or you have a mental health condition such as depression and anxiety, that has been demonstrated um, you know unequivocally. So it will help you feel better. You know, if you are struggling, um, for people with like depression, for instance, or anxiety or any other condition as well. We tend to look in research terms at one particular intervention, but the real world's not like that. So if I went in for, you know, to go and see my GP, for instance, for depression today, um, you know, or, or sought treatment from a psychiatrist, for instance, you know, I may be offered exercise as part of my intervention. I may be offered talking therapy too. I may, if that didn't work, be offered, you know, in consultation with a, you know, a doctor to, um, in you know take a, a medication i may also you know see a nutritionist because we know the emerging evidence around that so it's important not to just say that anything operates in isolation and mm. all of these can come together as part of a menu of options to help us feel better and just last week the nice guidelines were updated in terms of what we should be recommending to help people with depression and, you know, it's great to sort of see for people who are first presenting with mild to moderate depression that the guidelines have been updated and reflected, recommending that, you know, for some people, lifestyle changes and behavior change is part of a menu of options offered to Amazing. people based on the evidence, which is really great to see those policy changes. Oh, it's huge because I feel... Um obviously because we've got so much research behind the, the medicinal world I feel like medicine is often the first port of call whereas actually yeah lifestyle changes could could work in a stronger way I mean we've got these smiles trials for the Mediterranean diet um, and you know being as effective or if not more so than antidepressant drugs it's incredible looking at the research that's coming out that lifestyle can have such a powerful impact and in terms of the sedentary behavior, so we're, we're saying that studies definitely do suggest that your mood can improve if you move, but mm. does it also look at the fact that your mood doesn't improve when you are sedentary all day? So the fact that you can seriously, seriously harm your mental health by sitting still? Yeah, so, so it's a great question. And this is one where I'm continuing to stress test my own knowledge and belief systems. And I don't know off the top of my head, I've, I've I've published 20 to 30 academic papers on this topic and I'm, I'm still I'm bordering on being convinced even at my own research and I think that's a healthy position for me to be in you know we publish the data because that's what we find but it's a complex area when you just try and isolate sedentary behavior from a whole movement pattern I suppose you know it, you know giving you know, a comparison uh, in the nutrition world, and excuse my ignorance if this is slightly misplaced, but if you just look at one food group and try and say mm. this is the food group that yes. is making a difference, it's a bit like that with sedentary behavior. And we've, and certainly I have, I've published papers where we've fallen into the trap just looking at sedentary behavior and we haven't considered the whole 24-hour movement pattern mm -hmm. including sleep which is absolutely pivotal so i'll say what 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 we've shown and how we've tried to correct that and improve that and you can see how um you know we're, we're moving from imperfect research and my own included and with colleagues and i say that to any colleagues that listen with respect um to slightly better research that's convincing me there is more of an evidence of a relationship um, so there's a number of longitudinal studies that have looked at how sedentary people are in their daily lives and followed them up into the future to say, do they develop depression or do they develop anxiety? And they're free from these at baseline. So these are studies that have ruled people out at baseline have those symptoms. And there's broadly a consistent message um, that when you ask people about their physical activity levels, um, in the future, the more sedentary people are, the more likely they are to have one of these mental health symptoms or conditions in the future. Um, and to add weight onto this prospective data, which shows a direction and an association, there's been some interesting genetic studies that have mm -hmm. looked at objective accelerometry data. So 
um, in the UK by a bank. So what, what they've done is some really smart work. Carmel Choi is a, is a colleague at Harvard University. And she looked with uh, accelerometers, which are really accurate devices that measure physical activity and sedentary behavior and uh, genetic uh, risk factors for depression. Um, and because people's genes were measured in a sample of 60,000 people, everybody had their physical activity measured, people were followed up over time. And through this special type of analysis called Mendelian randomization studies, which is, which is a bit beyond my circle of competence, but essentially it's looking at a causal pathway through genetic um, association studies, that people who are higher uh, sedentary are more likely to develop depression in the future. But interestingly, what she found is that if you get people who are equally genetic predisposed, because there is some genetic factors which contribute to the risk of physical health and also increasing the understanding of mental health conditions. But if you have equal weighting, those who engage in higher levels of sedentary behavior and uh, lower levels of physical activity were less uh, were sorry more likely to develop depression compared to those of equal genetic risk who were less sedentary and more active so that's really interesting and, and you know it adds weight to our understanding in this area oh it does I, I think it's just so often overlooked isn't it and i don't think people put enough emphasis sometimes on the genetic components they're often brushed over i know in the fitness world um not by scientists like yourself but you know a lot of um a lot of voices in the online world without me saying anything that's not quite politically correct often state it's nothing to do with your genes it's all you and it's on you and it's your willpower and it's you not wanting to do xyz and it's just such a terrible attitude because like you said some people are just predisposed to certain things and then you've got the epigenetic components you've got you've got the lifestyle that can make the change and on top of what you're already predisposed to or not so it, it's really um we'll never fully we'll never fully know everything will we do you think never no never. certainly not in my lifetime I think that's the great thing about science is you, yeah. you just you, you never get to the end you just continue mm. to learn more and then continue to realize and look back and think how wrong you were in my case <laughs> about certain ideas which is great and it's yeah. certainly much more fun um showing that you were you were wrong about your own research than somebody else coming in pointing out actually you were wrong Exactly, exactly. Now, we mentioned the hippocampus briefly, but is there some research that um, aerobic exercise, or perhaps we need to go back to the, is it the 80s? Was that the, was that the era of aerobics? Yeah, yeah um, aerobics and, and yeah. Lots of step classes. And oh, see, that that's, I would love that, to be honest, Brendan. It's not quite in today, but do we have research that that's the type of exercise, you know, using, I mean, when I say aerobic exercise, I don't just mean that stereotypical classic image um but does it impact the hippocampus size yes it does it does so that was actually what we looked at in our paper in neuroimage um joseph firth is the first author published in 2019 so we looked at all studies that had ever been published in randomized controlled trials so this is where groups are allocated randomly to engage in exercise or just to not engage in exercise. Everybody had their hippocampus measured before and after exercise. And we had people who were quote unquote healthy and people with various clinical conditions uh, too. And what we found is that regardless of all of these different factors, is that you can see volumetric changes, i.e. changes in the hippocampus, um, over you know just a 12-week period, which is you know absolutely fascinating. And if there was, you know, a new medication, and we talked about this earlier, that came out um, tomorrow and showed, you know, in 12 weeks taking this medication, you can increase your hippocampus by 10%. You know, it would just explode in terms of. Um, you know, popularity and you know all of the you know the other awards that would go with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Um yeah, even just dancing around like you mentioned earlier with your friends in the living room or whatever is um very good for our brains, which which is lovely here. Now, if exercise doesn't seem to be helping, what advice would you give to people to work on their overall mental health? So we've mentioned, of course, that there are physical interventions here and things we can do. But if that's not an option or not working, what would you say? Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a good point. Um, so for people particularly, you know, have a, a mental health you know, symptoms or conditions, Psychological therapy is not going to help everyone on its own. Exercise is by no means a panacea. Medication is by no means a panacea. Um, I'm happy to be corrected, but I'm not aware of any panacea. So no. naturally, people will need to try you know, different things, and, and why not try things in combination? So if you're finding that you're struggling with your mental health uh, and exercise and physical activity and movement is not helping for you, particularly if you're not feeling great, you know, I'd really encourage you to you know, go and seek help from you know, a recognized professional who can help with you know, diagnosis and refer you on to you know, other types of interventions, for instance, such as access to psychological therapies, um, you could talk with a general practitioner and they can give you advice in line with NICE in the UK, which guides clinical practice. Um, and for international uh, listeners, that is just the best evidence about what to do for people at different stages and who haven't responded to different interventions. And then, you know, within the new NICE guidelines, they're recommending other factors as well, such as you know, improving, uh, you know, sort of nutritional intake, also mindfulness as well. So there's a variety of different non-drug related things you can try there's a you know psychological therapies which have really robust evidence you know an antidepressant medication has a really important part to play for some people too um, mm. and you know that's really important to acknowledge as well yeah of course and um, something i should have touched on before we take listener questions is aggression because there's definitely some of your research isn't there um that physical interventions can even help with anger yeah yeah absolutely so we have um, shown that for, for some people that physical interventions um, can help people you know feel healthier happier we, there's an association between um, less harm towards oneself um, so you know aggression towards oneself and also you know aggression and violence towards other people too um, so it's a really um, you know unique strategy which can help across a range of different ways and if i can sort of circle this into the current times that we're in at the moment so a part of this big study i'm just a, a small part of a big study called cofit um it's collaborative of health outcomes um during um the, the, the sort of covid pandemic so yep we have found that engaging in physical activity and exercise can not only improve your mental health it is also associated with less um, sort of harm towards oneself whether that be you know wanting to you know harm yourself or not wanting to live anymore and there's also emerging evidence to say that if you're engaging in physical activity and exercise this could be a really good strategy to reduce aggression and arousal in people too and um, you know in the current times that we're living in I mean I play a small part in, a, in an international study over 150 countries um, which has been monitoring the mental health, physical health, and people lifestyle changes um, during you know the whole COVID period called COFIT, and we looked 
at people's mental health over that period of time. The papers aren't coming out yet because we're analyzing the data. But we looked at what is the number one strategy? We asked people at several time points to help you cope during these really stressful times of, you know, all over the world of lockdowns and uncertainty and et cetera, et cetera. And people found rated uh, number one um, consistently um, was that uh, engaging in exercise and physical activity and movement was the number one coping strategy across mm. over 150 countries, which, um, again, just shows how helpful it can be. That's absolutely amazing. And was there a gender difference here between male and female or just across board? Yeah, so within that paper, um, I just know the overall results at the moment. So we're very much looking into all of the data and the nuances. Is there a difference between gender? Is there a difference between geographical continents? Is there a difference between people under different circumstances? We've got much more to learn and, and do. Um, I've just seen the top headline results at the moment, but they'll be out mm. in the new year. Oh, exciting. We'll watch this space, I think, because as we said, there's so many different things to discuss. Um, Brendan, I think one thing that we um, experience a lot in the nutrition clinic is exercise addiction, and it's so worrying at the same time. So whilst encouraging people to exercise, there's definitely a line, isn't there, and a balance that needs to be struck. Yeah, there, there, there really is. Um, so obviously exercise addiction or the, the compulsion to want to continue to exercise is a core part of, you know, some conditions such as, uh, you know, different types of eating disorders. But even, you know, in, in portions of the population who don't and have been screened for not having an eating disorder, people can have exercise addiction where they feel this compulsion that they have to exercise on any given day, even if they're injured and they'll miss and people will miss important social events. And for this type of people who um, have their relationship with exercise has, has, has shifted um, into being this sort of fun and pleasurable activity, it's become much more of an essential, you know, I must do it at all costs. And it impairs people's physical health and quality of life. So I want to give a shout out to Mike Trott, who's a PhD candidate I had the pleasure of supervising recently, who looked at this topic um, in the literature and also across gyms um, up and down across the UK. And, and, and what Mike found broadly is if you look across the general population or you look in any given gym, sort of 10 to 15% of people will have this quote unquote exercise addiction in the absence of an eating disorder. And, you know, this is a population where we don't really at all want to be encouraging increases in volume and increases in intensity because it can have a detrimental impact, but much more dialing it back down to sort of soothing types of movement and, you know, having more structure around that so people can build sustainable, you know, beneficial impacts for people too. But we've got much more to do to understand and help this population because clearly movement like eating is something that we we will all have to do. So it's about building those sustainable, positive relationships early on. But with most things, it's very difficult for people to recognize it within themselves. Mm. So, uh, you know, do reach out and get help if you're finding that it is becoming um challenging for you to not exercise absolutely absolutely thank you now we do have questions from our listeners and i i think this is um a very common one brendan that you'll come mm. across all the time is there lisa has said is there a golden number so is 150 minutes of exercise what i should be aiming for so you know i, I Thank you for the question, Lisa. Um, and I think it's a really important question, which lots of people want to know the answer to. You know, I think people have to set guidelines such as the World Health Organization or Public Health England in this country, you know, to give us something to steer towards. But this should be very much about an individual approach. Um, if you're in a situation today where you're not feeling great for physical or mental health or other reasons, and perhaps you're doing, I don't know, 10 minutes of you know, moderate exercise per week, then asking you, or if that was me, to do 150 minutes would just seem completely unrealistic. So it's really important that we take a personalized approach to this. And it's emphasized in the recently updated World Health Organization guidelines, who really recognize that if you're you know, not near the recommended guidelines, just start today with a small difference and get moving um, just as you can today. 
um, because these are not guidelines to put people off and think I need to do 150 minutes. I'm never going to get there, so I won't start. Mm. It really reinforces that wherever you are today, just you know, just gradually try and build up from there. And then when you do, you know, the aspirational targets for physical health and mental health benefits are 150 minutes of moderate um, intensity physical activity or 75 minutes of vigorous. And now they've increased the upper threshold where you see benefits to 300 minutes of moderate or 150 Mm. minutes of vigorous. So it's a bracket, but they really emphasize if these are not to put you off, start where you are today. Small changes make a small difference. And they also say and encourage people to do two days uh, strength training. So getting your Mm. muscles working against some form of resistance. Great. We are big believers in small changes, big results here over at Retrition. Um, Something we say in the clinic all the time. So it's really good to hear actually that, you know, there's a bracket and it really is just about starting, isn't it? That's the thing. And a question from Pippa. Now, Pippa has said, and I know you mentioned earlier specific conditions, so I don't know if you're able to answer this or not, but she said, my daughter's been diagnosed with ADHD. Which forms of exercise could be most beneficial to her? Well, thank you very much for your question, Pippa. Um, and it's, um, you know, we're learning much more about ADHD um, and what are the best types of exercise for people. Um, and really, I would say that whatever exercise um, that, um, that, that your child is really interested in, um, whether that be, I don't know, playing football or playing any other type of sport or walking, that would be the best type of physical activity and movement for them. Um, and once people are engaged in physical activity uh, and have some confidence and have some experience and they can expand into other types of interventions or other types of movement. So we're really moving away more broadly from saying this is the amount of frequency you should be doing, this is the intensity that you should be doing for any condition or people generally, this is the amount of time, this is a type, to saying just get started, just have a go at you, something you enjoy and then you can broaden your horizons and find where's the pleasure spot for you or your child and build up from there. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think whenever your child is concerned, it's always just, you just want to do what you can, don't you? And I think that's really good advice to start building up and just do small, again, it comes back to those small things, make, um, make big differences um and then uh, i've got to get this last question in before the fact or fiction round we've just got time and anastasia has uh, said i know exercise is meant to help with sleep but for me it just doesn't seem to be working am i not working out hard enough no anastasia you're not and i will uh, let you into uh, you know a, a secret it, it, it i really struggle with my sleep and i exercise quite sufficiently mm. as well so mm. it's something which i battle i personally battle with too i'm a terrible sleeper yeah. uh, and i spend my time researching and doing exercise as well um so absolutely uh you know just more broadly there is good evidence that um you know for the general popular you know generally not everybody you know clearly not everybody and that's what we're talking about when we do research we look at you know groups of people and we try and make it as representative as possible but even within a trial, not everybody is going to improve. You're looking at averages. So if we look at sleep, when we look at exercise interventions, whether it be resistance, um, yoga, um, uh, you know, any other type of exercise, we see that it can, at a group level, um, improve people's ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. But clearly there are some people which it doesn't help um myself included so it's not that you're not doing anything you know wrong um i would just say keep persevering and look at some other areas that you could potentially tap into as well you know your mindfulness and all of those other types of interventions which you may already be doing and this may be old hat to you so don't worry you're not doing anything wrong um keep going my only advice tip um would be and which i try and implement in my my own life is Whenever I exercise later on in the day, I'm going to try and do something more gentle um, because I find that if I become, uh, you know, do something too intense later on in the day, um, then my body and sort of physiological system is, is quite aroused and, and it takes quite a long time for me to sort of de-stress and process the, uh, the, the good feelings after exercise, but to sort of calm yeah. down. 
No, that's so interesting. Thank you. Um, I also am a terrible sleeper, but I don't know if that's my son's fault, really, or mine at the moment. I um, can't really decipher. Um, we are moving on to our fact or fiction round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Okay, here we go. If you could answer fact or fiction to the following. As little as 10 minutes of physical activity a week will increase happiness. There's no in between, is there? <laughs> So I kind of complex or caveat that with with anything else. Um, so if we're going to keep this binary, I'm going to say I'm going to say fact. Yeah, love it. You'll always feel less stressed after a workout. Gosh, this is difficult. It is. Um, I'm going to say I'm going to have to say <laughs> it's pretty difficult. It's a bit unfair. <laughs> um, That's the whole point. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. I'm going to have to say fiction because some people won't feel better after a workout, but most most people would and should, but there are, you know, there are some people that won't, so I, yeah. I can't be binary on it. <laughs> Mental illness does, does discriminate. Mental illness does not discriminate. That mm. is complete fiction. Okay. Yoga is positively associated with greater brain volume in the hippocampus. Too early to say fiction only some people suffer from anxiety fiction exercise has been shown to help with schizophrenia fact hydration will affect stress levels beyond my area of competence <laughs> well, um just for everyone listening it's not linked to stress directly but it will enhance your uh, performance and concentration so therefore maybe maybe unless you're an athlete it doesn't matter how you fuel your body for exercising fiction exercise acts as an anti-inflammatory fact the effects of physical activity in our brain are short-lived fiction that was great brendan so concise that was our fact or fiction round thank you and i think you've demonstrated and i say this every episode but this is why we do it because it you it's hard to be black or white isn't it in the field of research like what you do every day extremely hard because we very rarely talk in absolutes and we're always you know aware that you know a new study could come out tomorrow for instance saying that yoga you know in a 600 person trial increases um hippocampus volume and and i'm gonna look like an idiot but i'm perfectly happy to say what i know based on the recording today and that's yeah. fine yeah exactly no this is just it exactly science is evolving um and it does wrap up our episode but we do finish with a food for thought and i think i will start with that actually or rather finish with it um the fact that there's lots of people online and misguided that will say one size fits all or they will say it with so much confidence that it really makes you want to believe what they have to say or sell to you and I think it's worth just doing a bit of investigating and really trying to decipher through a, a panacea or a miracle claim you know that people are saying versus the evidence behind it because you'll have heard Brendan's very balanced conversation that we've had today you know admitting oh you know, things that I've said before could have been said in a different way. And there's lots of um, lots of ongoing research into different areas. But what I did love and took away from it is that aerobic and strength exercise are very important, of course, and it could potentially help with my brain health. And therefore, I am going to set a little goal to just keep moving a bit more. It's very easy to just stay in the house all day when you're working from home. So if you find something you enjoy, try and keep it up. Brendan, if you would love to leave our listeners a take-home message, a food for thought today, what would that be? So my food for thought would be that don't let the word exercise put you off. The most important thing is to have an ongoing, you know, self, you know, giving relationship with movement that you enjoy. Find a movement that you enjoy and find pleasure in, and then you're much more likely to do it today, tomorrow, and in the longer term, and continue to see the benefits. And then as you start to enjoy and find pleasure, you can try other things as well. And just rest assured that movement can 
help you feel better physically and mentally. It is not a panacea for anything. I don't know a panacea for any mm. condition. Um, and it's important to say that too, but as part of a menu of options in the context of mental health and mental illness, there's good evidence it can help you feel better today and in the longer term. So find what you enjoy, you find pleasure in, that's different for different people, and go and have fun. Oh, that was a lovely food for thought. Brendan, I've loved having this conversation with you. Where can our listeners go to find out more about the work you're doing and, and um, yeah, to learn more? Well, I've got an incredibly boring Instagram page um, where I tweet about <laughs> random research articles and various pieces. Um, I think I don't think Instagram. it's boring. Just thank you. <laughs> um, I tweet mainly about research and ac- academia, and I try and make it accessible for people. So that's the main place um, at the moment. And Bren- Brendon Stubbs on Instagram, and I always say this: I'm happy to be emailed um, by people if they've got questions. If you go on PubMed, which is the sort of the, the, the Bible database of academic and medical and health research, and you type in my name, you'll quickly find my email. Um, you can email me there, any questions or comments, or tell me if you think I'm wrong on anything as well. I welcome that too. <laughs> I think you'll find a hell of a lot of research. Brendan spent a very long proportion of his life looking into this. Brendan, thank you so, so much for coming on Food for Thought today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you've all enjoyed Food for Thought, you're going to love what's coming up. We've got so many amazing episodes. So if you're not already, make sure you subscribe because that way it will just pop up and tell you it's ready for you to listen to every single Monday. And it would be brilliant if you have time to leave a review. I know now and understand that these reviews of how you feel the podcast goes or if you learn anything from it can help other people reach it and hopefully they'll be able to take a lot away from it too. So for more information about my best-selling book, The Science of Nutrition, please do let me know if you've got your copy. The Retrition Clinic, if you want to book in and get some advice, healthy recipes, and so much more, please go and visit retrition.com. And you can follow me at Retrition on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.